you. And it is a, a joy of mine to be called back here. I, I often reflect on that, Joe. Um, <laughs> what Paul Washer said, uh, I believe it was Thursday morning, Friday morning, Friday morning, um, was a great encouragement to my soul. I was reading over my, uh, my journal, some of my journal entries from 2009 and 2010 when <clears throat> there was that, that time in Florida that Trisha and I were uh, wondering, what, what, what did we come out here for? <laughs> what are we doing? And <clears throat> why did I go to TMS? And who am I? And I thought all these things were supposed to be figured out when I was 18, 19, 20. And here I was, 31, 32, and asking the Lord what direction he would have for me. And uh, I think our hearts were, were set to invest in young men and young women here at the college at the time and now the university. So it's a great honor to be with you, uh, to sit under God's word with you during Truth and Life Conference. I remember uh, right back there in the corner, uh, one Truth and Life Conference, I remember hearing a sermon on Ephesians chapter 3, and that, that passage stuck with me, probably because my roommate brought it up later and said, wasn't that an awesome sermon on Ephesians chapter 3, where he's talking about the hearts, of, uh, the light, or, sorry, the eyes of our heart being enlightened. And I was like, yeah, that was, that was good, and it, it, it stuck with me for some reason. Uh, I remember many uh, sermons that <clears throat> the Lord uh, pressed deeply into my heart from this very pulpit and then also uh, the local churches that Trisha and I have been able to attend over the years. And as I was reflecting on the Truth and Life Conference and how much uh, privilege that we receive, it was good to be reminded of that and to take soberly the entrustment that's been given to each and every one of us week, week after week after week after week. And as I was thinking about that and the, the theme for this semester, this year, is Christ being all, I was thinking, what if you sat under every single one of these sermons and just let it go in one ear and out the other? It, 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 like we spent a lot of time around God's word. We spent a whole three days really just getting, uh, being soaked in God's word to set the right tone for the semester. And I was thinking, we, we just, we pour a lot of time and effort in that. The main thing that we do when we gather in a local church is we sit under God's word. We hear his teaching. We hear his voice come to us. And you guys know as, as students of the Master's University that that's a, that's a huge theme, not only from the pulpit, but as Joe's saying, to actually be lived out and appropriated in our lives. And it's always been a concern of mine for the Master's University student. For myself first, and for the student that I am surrounded by, is that constant hearing of the word wouldn't cause us to have buildup or callous on our ears, but that it would soften our hearts more and more and more and more each time we hear God's word. You ever heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt? You know that, you know that phrase. If you receive steak every night, good steak every night, if you received anything less than that, you'd be like, what is this? If you receive steak all the time, you would be discontent if you had to eat something that was lesser, right? Or, or just can become like, hey, this is just what I do. This is, what, this is, the, this is the world I live in. These are the, this is the waters I swim in. 
So my heart uh, went to a passage that you probably all have heard, and <clears throat> which is ironic because knowing this passage can often do just that. It can numb our ears and, and numb our hearts to the truths therein. But I couldn't help uh, but stay uh, focused on this as, as it came time to preach today. And I want to take us to a passage that will, <clears throat> I think, bring some clarity to how to sit under God's word consistently. And then also, of course, to appropriate that into our lives so much so that we be, would be characterized by doing the word. And that is James chapter 1, as Mike mentioned before. James chapter 1, so if you will turn there, we're going to read verses 19 through 27 of James chapter 1. <clears throat> James is, is writing to a very, er, very early church, probably one of the most, uh, the earliest manuscripts, the earliest letters written to the church that had scattered outside of Jerusalem after Stephen's persecution. James knows they could be going through all kinds of situations, the suffering that they're in, the suffering that happened in Jerusalem would have chased them uh, to, to wherever they went. It wasn't just a local persecution, it was something that spread, as we know of Paul's test, or Saul and Paul's testimony in Acts chapter 9, 10, and 11. So we know that they were, they were new, they were early, there's first generation believers this side of the cross. And he writes to them to stabilize their faith. And one of the key things that we begin with, right, is, is how, to, how to endure trials. What, what's God's perspective on trials? And he writes about that. And then he talks about it's easy to get jumpy and to, to be flighty during trials and to back away from trials or to, to get out of them, to go around them, to, to throw off the weight of trials and just want the comfortable thing. And James is saying, that's not the way you've learned Christ. It's to ask God for wisdom to know how to appropriate that truth during the trial and be able to go through the things of life, not avoid what life brings to us. And in that temptation, it's probably easy to say, I don't like, okay, is God sovereign? Yeah, I don't like this. So I don't like God because he's causing me to go through this. And the temptation would be then, this is God's fault. My anger is God's fault. My frustration at this circumstance or this trial, I'm going to blame that on God. And he says, hang on a second. The source of our temptation is from within. Not only that, but in contrast to every good gift ever given is from the Father above. And it's the, that's where we, we'll start this morning. Because he's such a good father, we learned about this. Ephesians chapter 1, two sermons on Ephesians chapter 1, right? That God chose us in him. That was his choice. Why did he do it? I don't exactly know. We know it was, because it was an overflow of his love, but I can't exactly tell you every reason why God chose to do that. But we know that he did. Look down at verse 18 as we, as we begin here. We'll start there. Read through verse 27. He says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, 
For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What we have this morning here is, is basically two things that, that James gives us, and that is how to humbly receive the word and then how to faithfully obey the word. It would be a shame for each of us to sit through the next, CJ, maybe you can help me with this, 38, 40 chapels for the semester, somewhere around there. Sure. All right. High 30s. All right. Church on Sundays, assuming you're hearing it there on Sundays and somewhere during midweek, but let's just say you only hear it once on Sundays. That's a whole lot of God's word coming to you in, in the next few weeks. What are, how are we going to respond to that? What are we going to do with that? What do we do with the diet that, that, is, that is given to us? And I don't want to point you to the main verb in the first few verses here, which is down in verse 21. He says, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And here's the key verb of this section. Receive, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Receive with meekness the implanted word. In other words, humbly receive it. Have a lowliness of mind when God's word is brought to you. So what are some of the prerequisites? Let's go back and and comb through verses 19 through 21 and and say, what are some prerequisites? You guys know what a prereq is, right? You can't take a certain class until you complete another, right? You guys know what a prereq is. You have, to re, you have to complete a basic course in, in order to step into the more advanced course. Here, James says, there's some, there's some items on our list that, that must be in place before the word can hit our hearts and, and be received with meekness. And those are found in verses 19 through 21. So what are these prerequisites? First of all, we've already looked at verse 18, and it's, first, it's this, that you, that you understand that you were born of the word. You were born of the word in verse 18. You have to, it sounds so basic, and some things will sound very basic this morning, but you have to understand that you began by the word of truth. That's how regeneration happened in your heart. Verse 18 says that. He brought us forth by the word of truth. That's how our regeneration began that we spoke of last week from Ephesians chapter 1. And so he's saying because of the new birth through the word, because of the new birth through the word, 
Let that right relationship with the word continue on. Let that right relationship with the beginning of the word continue to drive deeper and deeper into your heart and into your soul as you progressively become more like Christ. That's what he's saying in verse 18. And to do that, there must be an active response. And you know this full well. You're, you're an active agent even now as, as the word is brought to you. But especially last week, you're an, you're an active participant in that sermon. What, who, whoever it is bringing a, a truth about sola gratia or sola fide, whatever it might be, you're, you're, you're thinking through the things that are said. And you're receiving God's word. He's saying, just continue that on. It was live seed when it hit your heart. Allow it to continue. And he says there's three things that, that are often probably taken too quickly to, to, to just be applied as a, as a good communication or a, a good peacemaking relational principle. And it's not necessarily speaking directly to that. And that is the phrase, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. What is James talking about here? I want to press upon you that he is speaking more so like Solomon would to his sons in, when, when Solomon would say, listen, my son, hear, my son, incline your ear, lean your ear into what I'm saying, fasten these things onto your heart. See, uh, Solomon would also say, make your ear attentive. Do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. It's that idea of this, this look, leaning into and listening to what God would say and say, I'm, I'm ready. I want to hear that. Not so much saying that in our relationships, hey, be, be someone who's quick to hear and don't talk over people and don't get angry at people. It obviously has those implications. But in the, 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 the primary usage here in this context, since the, 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 really the word is setting that context, he's saying, when the word comes at you, have a quick response to hear. Not so much in the nature of like, oh, I got quick ears, but it's in my eagerness and my readiness that when the, the word comes at me, I'm saying, I'm, I'm engaged, I look forward to what the word would say to me. So it speaks of an, an, this inner attitude of attentiveness that is ongoing, that is a commitment in a sense of a view, the way you view God's word. And that could be when you sit down and study it personally. That could mean when it's given to you by means of a friend who's speaking the word to you. Or it could be a sermon. It could be a book. Whatever it might be, it's that, <clears throat> that careful attentiveness and that attitude that really governs our listening. That's what James is saying when he says, be quick to hear. And he also says, he follows that up with, be slow to speak. It's hard to be a good hearer if we're actually talking. If we're having that conversation in our mind that is distracted by hearing God's word coming to us. And <clears throat> here James again is saying, when it comes to God's word coming at you, what is, what is your natural tendency? What's easier to do? To listen or to speak? To say, I've got it figured, I, I have this figured out. That's our natural 
instinct. That's our human instinct. I like the term that, that uh, Paul Tripp has coined, and he's, he calls this our inner lawyer, our inner lawyer. And each of us has this. And you're, you're thinking, no, I, I love God's word. I sit under God's word. I, I, I want to learn. Yes, you do. But in each of us, there still remains a remnant of the flesh that says, I've got it. I've got this. And it's almost like, a, like this, this quick reflexive forearm comes out and says, I don't, I, don't need to, I don't need to listen to that. And it is especially revealed when someone has to personally apply, or maybe not apply, but personally bring in a, in a specific way the word of God to us, right? That, that can hurt sometimes. That can hurt. When the word of God is, it's almost like you're receiving a sermon from a friend because they're speaking to you about how God's word should apply to your life in a particular area. Fair? Paul Tripp says our, our inner lawyer can often come out and it can be our habit to be defensive first. Isn't that true? Why is that? Why is that just a human nature to be defensive, to protect self? It, it's just, it's, it's, it's wrapped up inside of us. It comes with our sinful nature. And I would say this, you cannot receive the word with meekness until you stop defending yourself. And I think sometimes we can hear sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon, and we can know a particular uh, lifestyle or choice or habit that we do day in and day out, and we become numb to thinking that actually needs to change. And even though the word of God can keep hammering us and drilling us and, and, and trying to press into our hearts, it's like we've, we've become content with this existence of just a quick, a quick defensiveness. It, not, it might not be a, this relational, hey, you're coming at me and I'm trying to defend you, I'm trying to protect. It could be that the word of God, when it comes to us, we might have a defensive posture. Next he says, quick phrase, he says, be slow. Let every person, so every person in this room, every person who ever reads scripture, every person, no matter where they're at in life, let every person, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And here, this word describes this persistent attitude of hostility. Not so much an outburst of anger, as much as it's describing this like low-grade, smoldering, I don't like this situation I'm in, I don't like what I'm hearing, I don't like, I don't like, I don't like. And again, the context that is in, the, the context that, that drives this here is speaking of the word. And you think, how could you ever be, you know, angry at God's word? Well, you might not even think that you're, you're an angry person. But how often have we grumbled and been bitter at or complained about the circumstance that God has put us in. That's, that's anger. Where is that anger being directed to? Sure, it's at this particular situation. Yes, it's this circumstance. But where does that ultimately go back to? We, 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 we might think that it stops at just, oh, I'm just complaining about this situation. 
I'm just grumbling over my cir- on this small little circumstance here. And it was just, that wasn't even a verbal complaint. It was just to my own self. Well, where is that ultimately directed to? James is saying it goes back to God. And you might, you might not think that you are an angry person, but think of these expressions of anger for a second before you let yourself off the hook. Grumbling, complaining, irritation, frustration, bitterness, rudeness, gossip, slander, outbursts of wrath, of course, cursing, hitting, actually wounding someone, or perhaps just wounding sarcasm. All of those things are expressions of anger that actually don't begin with the object that we're angry at that is right in front of us. That is ultimate anger that goes back to saying, I don't, I don't care for God's sovereignty in this situation because I'm not happy with what he's given me right now. And James addresses this later. We don't have time to look at it, but if you want to look at it later, just think of James chapter 4. Read, read James chapter 4. He's like, you, you don't think you're an angry person? Well, why are you quarreling and why are you at conflict with one another? He breaks it down later to talk about this is how it works out in the community. And where does that come from? Well, I want something. You're in my way. So I'm mad at what's in my way. Or I'm fearful of what's in my way. I'm either going to punch my way through to get what I want or I'm just going to run and try a different route to get what I want. Either way, James exposes anger for what it is, and it, he ultimately says it's, it's simply, we would like to let ourselves say, hey, it's, just, it's just anger here and there. It's just my own thoughts about a particular thing. He said, that's adultery. That's adultery. That's being like the world. That's adultery with your heavenly father who says, pulls the whole thing back and says, this is what anger really is. It's being like the world. It's being like the world. And why, why does he say, what, why give these prerequisites? Verse 20, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I know you've probably done this. I have done this myself. When I think I am convinced that this is the right direction to go, it's the right thing. It's guided by God's word. So I'm going to bulldoze to get there. I'm going to run people over. I'm going to talk over people. I'm going to be angry at this situation because that's going to get what God actually wants. And James is saying, you couldn't be further from the truth. You couldn't be more self-deceived. And in this interest, this is what the, where the Pharisees were. Thinking, no, we know exactly what's in scriptures. There's no way this guy could be the Messiah. And we will not accept him. We will not believe him. It's all over the pages of Scripture. They were looking at Scripture. They were scribes. But they could, not, they could not get over this. And they, they obviously, one of the worst expression of anger not producing the righteousness of God was at the cross, right? It's interesting that anger and trying to push through something to get righteousness can seem like the right thing. And you guys have probably done this in some type of argument, perhaps theological, perhaps over even caring for someone. You'll go too far and, and think that if I just press this further, if I just really make my point, then they will get it. They will become righteous because that's what God wants. And God's saying, 
It doesn't work like that. It's, it, it's a miscalculation of how, of how the Lord works. It's amazing to, to, to think about how the truth, the truth alone, can evoke so much anger in the human soul. Can you think about that? Truth alone, words, have caused the greatest reactions in history. I won't forget what Pastor MacArthur had said one time where it wasn't that people were, were offended at the acts that, that Jesus did. Everybody liked his acts. Who doesn't want free food? Who doesn't want baskets of bread multiplying? Who doesn't want to see a guy even walk on some water? That would be cool. Or how about heal my sick child? Nobody had a problem with that. It wasn't until Jesus started turning the corner and said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but my me. Even our world today loves a Jesus who doesn't speak. They love the Jesus that cares and is loving and does good deeds, but we don't want to listen to hear him. We don't want to listen to his speech. Words can evoke the most evil thoughts, the most evil actions in the human soul. I think about that story in, in, uh, recorded in 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 26. We won't look at it, but I want to explain it to you. The, uh, the king Uzziah was a very, very successful king, very successful king. And, and it says that when he grew old and when he had done all these things, his heart grew, do you know what that phrase is there? His heart grew proud. Because he, he, had, he had achieved it all. He was, he was living large as, as a king. And because his heart was proud, he went in to offer incense in the temple. So those of you who know what the Old Testament law is, it's obviously a violation. He's from a tribe that's not allowed to do that. The Levitical tribe is allowed to do that. Not the, not the kingly tribe. Not Judah. But he goes in and offers incense. Now, everything's actually still okay. But the priests come in and they confront him. At, they confront him. He could have put down that altar of incense. But what does it say he does? Isaiah grew enraged at what the Levites were telling him. And immediately leprosy broke out on his head and they ushered him out of the temple and he was a leper the rest of his life. It's interesting how just the simple words of the Levites saying, that's not king, that's not the way it's done. You've, over, you've overreached, you've gone beyond your God-given boundaries. And immediately at those words, he flares up and is enraged at them. <clears throat> I think of this passage, why don't we turn there actually, in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 is an interesting passage where Stephen is on trial before the council or the, the Sadducees. And he's, he gives them a, a history of what has taken place through, the, through Moses, through the years in the wilderness, through God asking them to build a temple. Then he turns the corner... In verse 51, he says, Acts 7, 51, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Those are tart words. Verse 54, what's their reaction? Humility, repentance? No. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witness laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Stopped their ears. Couldn't take it anymore. So much so that say, this is over. We're done hearing you. We're running you out of town and we're going to kill you now. It's amazing how the anger of man can be stirred simply by the truth. So, what does he say? Back to James chapter 1. It does not produce the righteousness of God. In, in other words, what do we have to do now? Right? What, what will produce the righteousness of God? Therefore, what do we need to do? Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Student, I want to encourage you this morning to continue. When you see the evil that God shows you by his spirit in your life, I want to encourage you to put that away because keep retaining that almost puts a capstone if you will, between God's word and your heart. It, it blocks your ears. It blocks the eyes of your heart. The word, in a sense, cannot penetrate more deeply until those things are removed. Those things have to be removed. All filthiness, anything that defiles, and rampant wickedness. And we might think, well, I'm certainly not someone who practices rampant wickedness. There might be a better explanation there. Of just, he's just saying abundance of evil, an overflow of evil. And, and John Calvin would even say that this is something that continually, in a sense, boils out of our heart like, a fact, like an idol factory. Something that, that is like a, like, a, like, a, like, a, like a fountain or a well. That, that the evil that comes out of our hearts, he's saying you have to get rid of it. In a, in a, in a sense, he's saying... There's a habit or there's a human nature that keeps pushing up sin to the surface. And the habit has to be just as strong that we would be putting that away. That's progressive sanctification. As more and more sin is exposed to you by the light of God's word, it's not to say, oh, this is just me. I'm stuck here. I just, I'm this way. He's saying, no, as you see that, chuck it, put it away. All filthiness, rampant wickedness. And here's a list just from James. Anger, partiality, favoritism, ignoring others' needs, uncontrolled speech, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, boasting, quarreling, making plans without considering God, trusting in material goods. Sometimes we don't think of those things as the abundance of evil, but James unpacks those the rest of his, in the rest of his book. I want you to look at a passage, 1 Peter. First Peter is a great parallel that sheds light on our passage in James. 
First Peter 1, verse 22, he says, context of the word again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Fairly clear. Verse 1 of chapter 2. So, because of this, because the word planted in you, in other words, put away all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, here's the verb, long. It's kind of hard to see that sometimes, but that's the verb. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. What's the point? The point is, is that I don't empty my heart of the evil that blocks God's word. I'm limiting my ability to comprehend and therefore appropriate God's word. So when I see sin, the, the, right thing to, to not, the right thing to do is to actually acknowledge that, repent of that, put, put that away so I can allow God's word to keep sinking in, into me more deeply and deeply. He said, notice where the word is. Look at verse 21. Notice where that word already is. Receive with meekness the what? What's the word? Look at it. What's the word there in verse 21? Receive the... Talk to me. Huh? I'm hearing a lot of mumbles. Someone just shout that thing out. Daniel, I'm calling on you. There you go. Implanted. That word is already in you. The thing that we're already supposed... The thing that we're supposed to continue to receive is already planted deep within our hearts. He's saying make room for that seed to grow. I, I like to garden sometimes, and, and, and as, as growing up, I had to pull a lot of weeds, and sometimes I thought my mom was just punishing me by pulling weeds, and she wasn't. We were actually making room for the stuff we wanted to grow, to grow, to flourish the best of its ability, not just to mindlessly pull weeds. She never sent me to pull weeds out in the middle of our field. It was always pull weeds in the garden. It was, it was pull the weeds that are near the plants, not just go to the corner or the edges of the fence where we weren't planting things and say, hey, go waste your time around the perimeter of the fence pulling weeds out of there, David. No, it was, it was hey, these plants have got to grow. Let's make some room for them. Let's keep them healthy. How do we, what is one of the ways we do that? We get the weeds out of the way. The weeds steal nutrients. The weeds take over. The weeds, the weeds grow naturally. The seed must be cultivated. But notice that he says that's the location of the word. Where? It's in our very heart. That, we, we don't have the time to look at it, but Luke 8, uh, the, the parable of the soils, or, or I believe Matthew 13 is the other parallel passage. <clears throat> you can look at it. That, that, that word, that, the, the word is the seed, and it hits that, that good ground, and it says that those who are obedient and faithful, that's the seed that continues to flourish. It's not just magic. God regenerated the heart, but we must continue to remove what we see in our life out of the way so the word has room to grow. All right, a couple of hindrances to hearing. 
I'm just going to give you two. Distractions, of course. There's just too many things that capture our attention. Too many things. We're, we're, we settle so easily, as was brought to us last week. We're just so content to tune in to easy things. Things that don't mean anything past the time we spent in them. Right? It's so easy to do that. And it is so hard to discipline ourselves to bring our, our, ourselves to, to come around things that actually matter. Of course, this being God's word. Distractions. Distractions hinder. There's many more we could list here, but I want to I point out one in particular that I think is, is often a snag, and that is a flawed messenger. A flawed messenger. That can be a hindrance to hearing God's word. And I want to speak of two particular people. That is your parents, and that is your friends that you know very well. Why is that such a snag? Well, because you know your parents, and you know, you know, you can start to see their sin. You're not just that little kid anymore that's like, um, I, I like my, my dad, and I like my mom, and I'm, I'm going to try to obey them. Now you're starting to begin to see their weaknesses, and, or perhaps you've seen that for some time. Or even in a friend, if a friend comes to you and says, brother or sister, you're not, you're not living according to the, the, the way God's word says. And you, you're, you're a believer, right? Yeah, I'm a believer. Well, then help me out here because I'm seeing this. What is the most natural thing to do in that moment? Because you know that person so well. It's the blame shift. Or it's to deflect and say, well, you, what, 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 how, 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 you have no room to talk. You know what you were doing last week? You know what I saw you do and I never talked to you about it. That's our natural fleshly inclination that James is saying. That's your defensive inner lawyer that comes out. And as God's word comes to us, he's saying, get rid of that. Get rid of that evil. Make room for the seed to grow. Of course there's going to be flawed messengers. Your parents do sin. But that does not excuse you from obeying the word that they hold precious. You're, you're accountable before God. Your sin, yes, your friend sins. Your spouse will sin. Your peers will sin, your, your boss, your employees, the, everybody around you, your pastor will sin. But is that excuse? Does, it, does James say, hey, if you can point sin out in somebody else, you're off the hook? Of course not. Be, be wary of deflecting to the flawed messenger and excusing ourselves. Now, there's, uh, of course, this passage continues on in 22 to 27, and I only want to hit a couple of highlights in these next few verses. Here's where he turns the corner. He's saying, hey, receiving the word, utmost importance. Making room in your heart for the word, utmost importance. But that's not all. Verse 22, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That's really the next, the next driving force in this passage is that self-deception. Self-deception comes naturally to you and to me. 
If we're natural at one thing, it's that. You want to be a natural? Sometimes you say, oh, you're natural at that. You know what you're natural at? You're a natural at your own heart convincing you of something that is untrue. How do we do that? What is a great way to, what's a recipe for self-deception? It's this. It's right, it's laid out for us in the text. If anyone, this is a great picture, a very simple analogy that James gives, verse 23, for if anyone's a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like a man who, keep track of this, looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, looking at himself. Number two, he goes away, and at once, number three, he forgets what he is like. That's a recipe for self-deception. You look, at, you look into the mirror so much so that you say, that right there needs to be fixed. I'm assuming all of you did that this morning by the looks of you, right? We, we, don't, we don't practice what this fool in James 1 does, right? When you see something that needs to be fixed, you fix it, right? You don't walk away until you actually can see accurately if you fixed what you saw in the first place. This is a very simple analogy that, that, that James gives us here, and he's just saying... This is something that, this is what happens when the word of God comes to us. We're like, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I'm even taking notes. This is, this is awesome. I agree with this. Yes, this is good theology. Right. I agree. I should probably change. It's, it's all of that. That's, that's accepting, that's receiving the word. But he's saying you must take it one step further because the fool is someone who goes away and doesn't stay there, and he immediately forgets. That's the practice that'll inculcate a self-deception. It'll make you good at, at almost like anything would. Practice over time is going to make you an expert at something. Student, when the word of God comes to you and you hear it, do not and be wary of your heart that wants to make you think that, hey, listening and agreeing, we're good. Time to go to class. Time to do my thing. Time to hear the next sermon. Oh, maybe I'll listen to one, uh, or a, 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 I don't know, maybe a, a podcast, or I'll, I'll download another sermon. I'll listen to this. Sermon, 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 sermon. Sermons are only a vehicle. God's word is only a vehicle to show you what you need to look at. And that's where we want to end this morning is this phrase in verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. He will be blessed. You want to be blessed? I know you do, student. I know you do. If you want that, when you hear God's word and you walk away, you have to be the one who doesn't just hear but also and forget, but you do and you act. And the, it's interesting. The nature is not just like, oh, you go away and you do all these things. James is saying here, your nature is that of a doer. You're characteristically you're, you're just, you could be described as someone who does. Sees it, goes away and does it. 
It's habitual, James is saying. You become. The word actually right there for be doers is actually can be translated easily as become. Become doers. Become this type of recipient of the word as someone who does it when they hear it. Now, this interesting phrase, we have to get this else we, I, I fail you this morning. Verse 25, he looks where? Into the perfect law. And that perfect law brings what? What's the word? I'm going back to you, Daniel. It brings the law of, talk to me, liberty. 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 What do you think about when you think of the word of God? Is the word rules? Is the word, is the word commands? Is the, is the word something that you would rather set down because you know it would, it would cause you to change? But James is saying, no. The guy who gets it, the woman who fears the Lord, looks into the law and what does she see? She sees that the law is perfect. Well, if the law is perfect, then... It's going to bring that freedom. It's going to bring that liberty. It becomes a law that's exciting, that's joyful to fall under, to come under. Because it's a law that, here's, here's someone who describes it, his name's Alfred Plummer. He says, when the law is seen to be perfect, that is found to be the law of liberty. So long as, as the law is not seen in the beauty of its perfection, it is not loved. And men either disobey it or obey it by constraint and unwillingly. But when, it's perfect, but when its perfection is recognized, men long to conform to it. And they obey, not because they must, but because they choose. This is the freedom that the believer experiences in Christ. Before, you thought you were free by following after sin. Romans chapter 6. But by following that, it just led from sin to sin. Then finally Christ saved you and it goes and he finally releases that burden that you were under. Isn't that interesting about self-deception? The more I sin, the more I'm living the tr into my true self, some people think. Actually the opposite of true. The more you're becoming unlike Christ. I want to end with this quote by our president in his commentary on James. He says this, the person who humbles himself by figuratively stooping over to get a better look at the word proves his right spiritual motive and attitude. His concern is not with the bare facts, but with divine truth, and therefore he obeys what he learns. In doing so, he is blessed and God is glorified. He also detests the reflection of himself that he sees in the mirror of the word. And his overriding desire is to have every sin, every spiritual and moral blemish removed and replaced with God's righteousness. Those are the two things that we see when we look into God's perfect law. Not only do we get to see our sin, but praise God, we get to see a Savior who's greater than all that sin. Let's pray. Our Father, Lord, we want to be those who would hear your word hear your word so much so that we see it as perfect and we go away and we rejoice in being able to do what you say, knowing that it's perfect, knowing that you have our best interest in mind. God, I pray for these students, I pray for this university that as the word of God comes to us, Lord, 
it would be appropriated in every moment, in every way, in all of our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name.